so when I first started using social media and the internet for contact with the world of the medical speech language pathologist, I noticed that while there was a lot of potential there, there were also a lot of problems. Like whose information do you trust? Who is an expert? Is what being posted online really evidence-based practice? By answering those questions for myself, I found the answer for some others. That answer has become the Medical SLP Collective. As we all learned last year with COVID, sometimes there is no roadmap or journal article for a specific case or scenario. Using clinical expertise from a variety of settings combined with research and experience, we've cultivated a supportive community that provides education and mentorship to help you get the best results for your patients. Join us May 17th through May 21st for our third Medical SLP Summit. Join us to hear cutting edge information from 20 of our mentors that help to educate our members daily. The summit serves as the grand opening for the Medical SLP Collective open enrollment period, which will begin during the summit. You can sign up for the Medical SLP Summit completely free at www.medslpcollective.com forward slash summit. That's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash S-U-M-M-I-T. And we look forward to seeing you there. If you don't need any further convincing and would like to sign up now for the MedSLP Collective or just check out a little bit more about what it is all about, you can go directly to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash video series. That's medslpcollective.com forward slash video series. This is episode 181 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast. And today we have two wonderful guests with us. We have Dr. Marty Brodsky and Dr. Anna Miles. Uh, Marty Brodsky is an associate professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Johns Hopkins University with an emphasis in researching ICU patients and endoscopy as it relates to speech pathology. And Dr. Anna Miles is a London trained and works at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. And Dr. Anna Miles is London trained and works at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. Dr. Miles is a researcher, lecturer, and clinician in the area of swallowing and swallowing disorders. Dr. Miles has 25 plus years of clinical experience in acute and community care. She is vice president, professional standards, and expert advisor in adult dysphagia for the New Zealand Speech Language Therapists Association. She is co-chair of the Dysphagia Research Society COVID-19 Task Force and has authored a number of papers and policy documents on COVID-19 and dysphagia over the last 12 months. Now, I hope you all thoroughly enjoy this episode. We actually decided to break this into two parts because, of course, the three of us couldn't just keep it to one episode. I hope you all enjoyed part one and come back next week for part two. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in.
Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello to both of you. Hi. Hello. I usually say good evening or good morning, but we have both going on here. So good evening and good morning to both of you. <laughs> to you as well. Yes. All right. So we have a wonderful, wonderful talk planned for this episode. We have Dr. Marty Brodsky is back. He's been on a few episodes before, and we have a new third person joining us for this episode, and it's Dr. Anna Miles. So this is going to be a really good conversation about, you know, the, the idea for this talk was what the heck has gone on in the last year and where have we been? You know, it's been a little over a year since COVID really hit and the lockdowns majorly went into effect and how it's affected our profession as a whole and where we've been and where we're going. And so we're going to dive into all things about that from opposite ends of the globe. So, Anna, if you want to tell the people a little bit about yourself. Hi, thank you. My Anna Miles. I'm um, a English English come New Zealander. I've been in New Zealand for twenty years now. It's most definitely morning. You'll probably hear the beautiful bird songs of New Zealand in the background. Um, I'm a speech language pathologist and an academic. Um, most of my career has been in acute care uh, trauma, but I now work more in head and neck cancer and and um, outpatient care. And I wouldn't say I'm passionate about COVID, but I've certainly <laughs> been very involved in COVID. <laughs> it wasn't by choice, but um, I was very honored to be asked to co-chair the um, COVID-19 task force for the Dysphagia Research Society. And I also hold a vice president and professional standards hat for the New Zealand Speech Language Therapy Association, uh, which has involved writing the policies and procedures for COVID for speech pathologists in New Zealand. So I have by accident ended up very knowledgeable about COVID this year. Yeah, yeah. Marty, who are you? Hi, I, I'm Marty Brodsky. I'm a uh, a speech language pathologist and clinician researcher at Johns Hopkins University. The research that I do is primarily in the ICU and acute care wings. And my clinical caseload is outpatient um, with some consultations on the inpatient as well. Beyond that, uh, I, similar to Anna, I got thrown into COVID. I think simply because I was hanging out in the ICUs and the ICUs were getting pummeled. So people, you know, turned to me looking for guidance that, frankly, I didn't have. <laughs> I don't think anybody, you know, had. I, you know, right, right. I was close to the people who I was learning from and could pass that information along. And I think that's primarily how I got involved uh, with everything. And uh, like Anna, I worked with her on the task force uh, for DRS and beyond that everything else come what may and it's still coming it hasn't stopped all right so where i guess where do we begin so we are officially one year post onset of covid so I guess where do we want to start well we've learned a lot right <laughs> yep yep <laughs> and i've certainly played with different people than i normally play with <laughs> i mean i i i did know the infection control team but Certainly never had the level of conversation I've had with them as that we've had in the last, well, really very much in the first two 
months of COVID. And yeah, I mean, who knew that we'd talk about PPE and N95s and aerosol generating procedures and know the difference between an aerosol generating procedure and an aerosol generating behavior um, and spend hours trying to put them into tables where one was put into one box and one into another. Um, so yeah, we've certainly learned massive amounts. Uh, in New Zealand, I don't know how many of you are Americans know, we very routinely use cough reflex testing as part of our clinical bedside assessment. It's a test of airway sensitivity. So we use a citric acid test to just really try and unpick some of that silent aspirator risk factor. And of course, those were cancelled immediately because of the nebulization. So from the very, very beginning, we needed to think very carefully about which of our procedures we would use, which we wouldn't. Of course, the first thing was just banning everything until we worked it all out. Um, I think probably the cough reflex testing and the fees were the biggest challenges to us in the early days, wouldn't you say, Marty? I, I think so. Um, I, I can tell you, I was just reviewing this information a, a little bit earlier today. Uh, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic on March 11th. On March 22nd, the hammer came down and all instrumental exams were stopped at our hospital. And we did not resume again until about May 20th. We were down for two months. It, it was I, it, all research stopped related to patients, all instrumental exams, all surgeries, all procedures, 100%. You know, it, it was like, I, I've never seen this anywhere. I've never read about it. I didn't know anything about this anywhere, period in my life. Even with MERS and H1N1, it was still pretty well contained and you never heard anything like this. So this is definitely a unique time in that regard. And, you know, similar to what you were talking about in, in three-letter acronyms of PPE and AGP and all that, I swear my vocabulary increased by 50% because I didn't know half of these words prior to COVID. Definitely unique times. We've learned a lot in such a short period of time. Do you know what? I'm One of the things I was reflecting on, because I was looking at some of the guidelines we wrote last March, um, and I was thinking just how incredible our profession is, that we were fastest at so many things. We were fastest at getting out those AGP guidelines um, across the board, our, you know, ASHA, NZSTA, DRS, like, I think we really should be proud as a profession how quickly we acted and so bravely. I mean, we had people who were just working their guts out and not really knowing if they were at risk of infection in the early days. And so still, despite that, the only thing you really heard was people fighting for patients. I've got to get in there. I've got to treat my patients. You know, I just... The speed of which we brought out guidelines to support us to get back in and treat patients, I think, was remarkable. And um, when you look at some of the outpatient data that's coming out of some of the statistics in the UK, there's a hell of a lot of people who didn't get seen. You know, a lot of populations 
of physio, OT, nursing needs who just got left behind for months and months and months. And we have no idea what the impact of that will be on chronic health in our countries. Yet when you look at speech pathology, we did not drop a beat. We were in there. We decided what we were going to do. We changed rapidly as as we understood more about the aerosol generating procedures and about the types of PPE and how they protect us. And we just kept on going. You know, the burden coming out of the UK statistics is alarming. You know, the burnout and depression in the speech pathologists is just horrific. But it's because we triumphed. You know, people like Sarah Wallace who get an OBE for their work in ICU, we should be so proud, so, so proud of our profession and the fact that we fought, we've fought through this and we will continue to because there's a hell of a lot more that we've got to do next. I, I was actually just remarking, I was giving a lecture to uh, a graduate course and among the things that I said, COVID has, if nothing else, given us job security for the next millennium. It, it is phenomenal, the impact here um, and the far-reaching results of this disease and how it impacts all of us. You know, I one of the things I, you know, in as much as we're talking about accolades, one of the things that I think the world has seen is people coming together no matter what profession you're in, in the healthcare and healthcare sciences, people coming together from across the globe, working together for the common person on the face of the planet to put together vaccines, to share data, to be able to collaborate. I, I can tell you, I, you know, I've been a speech pathologist for over 25 years. I have never had the opportunity like I've had now, and I suspect most people are in this boat. I'm not unique in this way, it's, I, but I look at this fondly in that the collaborations that I've had, I, I'm not sure I would have ever had them were it not for COVID. And the amount that I've learned about the way different societies and countries have viewed our profession, their approach to clinical care the way that that I've transformed my thinking just by learning about what you do in New Zealand or what um, colleagues in Australia are doing, um, colleagues in Japan, colleagues in the UK and Ireland across Europe. Um, I, I've never been part of a situation where I've been talking with people on six continents and being able to put together the information that we have. And I, I you know, I, so if there's any silver lining to COVID, it would be the spans of relationships and the amount of knowledge that we've gained simply by making more available the electronic means, interestingly enough, to get together and to do work together. I think you're right. And I think as, as, as academics, we've all felt that, that we're actually... We've almost been advantaged by COVID in some ways that it has given us some time to build relationships internationally. But um, I was very interested when I read the UK RCSLT survey about clinicians on the 
um, who were in the workforce and they were saying the same thing that they were more connected with colleagues in other hospitals and they'd had more continuing professional development this year than ever before because it was all online. They didn't need to apply to go to a conference or a course. All these incredible webinars were suddenly available for them to watch whenever they liked. And I thought, please, if anything, can we not remove that? You know, can that be the one thing we've taken that you can sit at home? We were, before we went online, we were talking about parental leave and how hard it is when you're on parental leave to, to keep up your hours. Well, if it's all a webinar that you can join your favorite SIG for, while feeding your baby, then that's great. You know, that please let us never lose the opportunity for someone in South Africa who couldn't consider the 5,000 US dollars to get to DRS to still be able to attend the Dysphagia Research Society meeting. Let's, let's not lose those moments where those with less money and those with less time can still get access. Yeah, yeah. Are you doing fees, but you're not really happy with your software? Are you missing audio recording to complement your voice? Is your system lacking frame-by-frame, fast-forward, or slow-motion review? Is there no integrated fees report with your system? If your answer to any of these questions is yes, I highly recommend getting in touch with our friends at PatCom Medical because honestly, these features are game-changers. They offer a software solution that includes everything you can wish for when doing fees and it will work with any system, no matter the brand. You can reach them at info at patcommedical.com or visit www.patcommedical.com. That's P-A-T-C-O-M-M-E-D-I-C-A-L.com. I, I want to talk a little bit about, I guess, kind of the flip side and kind of the dark side. And, you know, I know you guys all know how passionate I am about, you know, the skilled nursing setting. And in that setting, they almost just almost just seem to have been forgotten throughout all this. And just so many SLPs were laid off. You know, they didn't, it, like you said, they're in, seemed like in the hospitals and in acute care, they were so quick to figure out how we were going to manage this, what our role was, you know, what the guidelines were. But it almost seemed like that just never happened in a lot of skilled nursing facilities. And instead, SLPs just got laid off patients got neglected. It, it seemed to be, you know, the, a lot of the SLPs I work with, you know, most of them work in acute care and, and the other half work in skilled nursing. And, and there was just such a divide in the culture in both of them. You know, you talk about, it seems like in acute care in the hospitals, the SLPs were closer than ever. They had essentially been through war together. And, and it seems like in the skilled nursing, they just didn't know what to do. Like they just didn't know what guidelines to follow or what our role was. And there just have been so many layoffs there. And it's just crazy. You know, I just don't know how we come back from that. You know, I, and I know that a lot of places are starting to and trying to figure it out. But, you know, now there's, you know, more cases in some areas. And it's just, I, I really, I, I worry so deeply about this setting for both SLPs and for patients. What I'd like to see, you raise a very good point. It's the yin to the yang, right? And, And we're actually seeing that right this moment in vaccine rollouts and that once again, the hospitals are prioritized. Opinions on how that's working aside, 
very similar to any bad storm uh, and whether it's a hurricane a tornado or otherwise when levees fail when electricity fails when there's flooding there are things that can be put into place such that for the next time we can prevent some of this uh, atrocity some of the difficulties from happening and my wish my hope is uh, straight across the board and certainly in extended care and um, outpatient facilities that this was an opportunity for us to recognize the weaknesses in the system and that what is prioritized are those weaknesses going forward to reinforce them like they've never been reinforced and and that's my hope um you're as the saying goes you're only as strong as the weakest link well we saw many weak links and there was never a chain that was more than three inches long here yeah. because i got to tell you the hospitals suffered the same fate just in different ways and on different levels yeah yeah i think the fascinating part like you said is that we we have solidified our role essentially and, and i when when the first you know lockdowns really went into effect and, and it was kind of when everything really happened last March to begin with, I remember there was a, a skilled nursing facility right down the street from me that I had, I had worked at for years. I had done fees at for years and they had all of a sudden just gotten a huge wave of 20 patients on ventilators. And this skilled nursing facility had never had patients on ventilators before. And it, it's a facility I worked very closely with. And the SLPs were like, we've never worked with patients on vents. We don't know what to do. And I'm like, this is not the time to learn. Like, but but they had to, you know? And, and I think it was such a huge wake-up call as to really, I think in that facility, how important our role is, you know, how important SLPs are that, yes, that is within our scope of practice to work with these patients on ventilators. Um, and, and I know for that, skilled nursing organization, it was a huge wake up call as to, you know, how, how important our role is. And maybe it will move us in that direction. Like we've always known taking an older person to hospital is the worst thing we can do for them. They're going to get worse. They're going to get malnourished. They're going to get infections. It's, it's, they're going to sit in bed more than they do at home. They're going to be more disorientated than they are at home. So hopefully we can you know, we, nobody's going to want people going to hospital anymore. We, we've now decided that's probably a bad place for people to be unless they really need it. Maybe we will upskill speech pathologists and nurses in these places to hold on to their residents. Maybe this will encourage the mobile fees services that we know are better for patients, these residents, because they're staying in their familiar environment. They aren't having to sit in a ambulance to to wait around in a waiting room to then have an uncomfortable procedure it, i mean it could be that this is the future is more skilled people in those facilities across the board skilled facilities um, skilled nursing facilities extended care was not insulated from covid in any way and if if anything they were perhaps even more vulnerable um, because of the lack of PPE that was there, because of the lack of funds, because of the lack of staffing, uh, because of the layoffs, because of the lack of room, because for all intents and purposes, and I hate to use the term, but in some sense, many were seen as dumping grounds from the hospital. Bottom line is that this was a system that was 
perhaps at its breaking point, even before COVID, we were making it from day to day, you know, I, maybe breaking points a little bit strong, but we were making it day, day to day, but it was that one thing that was going to put it over the edge to break it. And that one thing was not too far from the edge from where we were. And COVID just gave a big shove. And, and here we are. Uh, you know, from the hospital side, I know that the hospital was not our, our hospital was not testing prior to sending people out um, in the early days, sending people out to extended care facilities. They had to ration, if you will, the quick tests um, and so forth. And that was the population that they did not want to test. They wanted to save it for the people coming into the hospital to know how to deal with them. And the extended care facilities around us pushed back and said, we will not accept anyone until you test them. That continued to push and continued to push and continued to push. And they butt heads in a big way. The only ones, in fact, who were getting tested were the ones going to inpatient rehab facilities, not extended care facilities. That's, why is that, do you think? I, I, it, it, That's bananas. It did not make sense to me because <laughs> in any regard, it's a vulnerable population. So whether it, you're straight out of acute care and you're going to inpatient rehab or you're straight out of acute care and you're going to extended care that has no protections, there are no guardrails here. It made no sense to me. But just like, you know, New York, unfortunately, had to draw the line of who they're going to do CPR on and um, whether they're even going to respond to calls or how they're going to treat patients once they hit the ER and where that patient's going to be, whether it's in the parking lot, in a tent or otherwise. There were some really, really tough decisions being made on every level of every government, on every level of every hospital, on every level of every facility. And I don't envy any of those people at all. You know, it, it, this was not a shining moment for anyone. And it, it's it, the outcome here has been and continues to be, I sound like I'm getting on a soapbox here, but the outcome has been and continues to be pretty abysmal. And the three words that continue to go in my head and have not stopped for over a year are the three words very simply of, this was avoidable. Had the proper things been in place, this was avoidable. You know, I, we can point fingers all day long. It's not going to change the last year. But going forward, we need to be a lot smarter. Mm -hmm. We know we've learned so much. Healthcare has, has learned so much. But I think the general public has really taken some appreciation as well. Um, I, switching topics only slightly, but very directly related to COVID and our behaviors relative to COVID. We have cut the curve on the flu. Yeah. The flu is phenomenally reduced from what it's typically year to year. And not only have we cut that curve by, I think it's about 20 or 25%, something like that. We've cut it by six weeks short of what it typically runs. 
Why? I think it's even better here. I think we skipped a whole flu season. We didn't have That's a, right. I didn't have a single New Zealand admission to hospital, as far as I'm aware, for influenza for the whole of 2020. So we missed a winter. I, I, I think... Over the last year, I may have seen two patients with the flu. And I can tell you, in any given year, I'm seeing the common cold on the wards that has just developed into dehydration and so forth, all the way up to septic shock and cardiogenic shock as a direct result of the flu. I wasn't seeing any of that. And why? We're all masked. We're all washing our hands. We're staying away and, and stopping hugging and kissing and all the rest of the stuff that spreads these germs in the first place. Now, by no means is this the suggestion, it's the human condition, right? That we like being around each other and we like showing affection and all the rest of that stuff. But this is what we really are capable of when it comes to controlling disease. Yeah, we were trying to control COVID and we were successful to whatever degree at any point in time. But as the side effect, the flu took it on the chin. I'm proud of that. So that's a good thing. Yeah. And it wasn't until all our children went back to school that we all got common colds again. (laughs) (laughs) I can't speak to that. My daughter just returned to school for the first time today. Oh, yeah. I'll give you 10 days. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) You know, it's, it's interesting. We were talking about vocabulary and we were talking about, you know, the pleas to conferences to be able to make more available the educational opportunities that they have. Uh, One of the things that we've seen in academia is far more webinars than I've ever seen in my life. But aside from that, there've been more opportunities to learn different things. And uh, people have gotten really creative in being able to put together things that we've not seen before along those lines. Prior to 2020, the word hybrid in my head was only a car. Um, now we get to show up and we get to learn online at the same time and, you know, in, in all the forms with regard to school and academics. Yeah. Never mind telehealth. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, that has had a huge push forward. My concern in this country yeah, I was gonna is say. whether they're going to pull back the reins a little bit. Yeah. Remains to be seen. It's clearly working beautifully. We had that fabulous uh, long COVID talk at DRS this year. And I know the same thing's happening in the UK that particularly their follow-up outpatient clinics are multidisciplinary telehealth phone call, you know, consults, video consults with patients at home. They do not want to go back to that hospital. They've had enough of hospital life. They do not want to come into an outpatient clinic. They've only just recovered and the the feedback's incredible. They love it. They're seeing all their team at the same time. So they don't get all of that. Oh, the nurse popped in and said one thing, but then the speech path told me another when she came around. The doctor said something completely different at my outpatient appointment. They're getting this, what we always knew was the right way to do it, but we couldn't quite coordinate it in our busy um, schedules. Um, we're getting these multidisciplinary remote clinics that amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Necessity is the mother of invention, right? Yeah. 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 I I can't believe, I mean, this week they, they just are now allowing telehealth for dysphagia, which that was just such a blow when 
yeah, when they first came out with, when Medicare first came out with this, or CMS first came out with the codes and included all these speech codes, but didn't include dysphagia. So thank goodness this week it finally has been included. But I guess I think that's only through the end of this year. So there's a lot of people hoping that they extend it. I think we've all learned when we like using it and when we use it because we have to, but we'd prefer not to. You know, I I think we've we've been given that opportunity to explore it and explore how it's best used. Um, And not just true tele-video sessions, but all of those other ways. You know, we were locked down for um, a couple of months full at home for a while at the beginning of last year and nobody was allowed out apart from essential workers and um, I was very concerned about my head and neck cancer cohort so I just sent them all online surveys and asked them to complete eat tens and head and neck checklists and uh, VHIs and have you lost any weight what are you eating what are you worried about so that I could triage them all and know which one I needed to actually phone and talk to properly. And, you know, I've never done that before. They've just been slotted into their usual come in, pre, come in, mid, come in, one month post, come in, six months. You know, this actually was sensible because some of them come into clinic normally and tell me they're totally fine. And they've driven three hours to tell me they were fine. (laughs) And a patient doesn't seem to be able to phone and say, do you know, I don't think I need that appointment. So they come in to tell you they're absolutely fine. And then you get someone else who comes in who's been struggling away for weeks and weeks. And you're like, why didn't you call? Well, because my appointment was booked for that time. You know, there are things we've learned that perhaps we can do more of that actually allow us to monitor people. Everyone loves their smartphone now. Patients the same. They're perfectly happy to tap a few, eat 10 scores in and send it off. And immediately I know who really needs to be worried about and who doesn't. Um, So, yeah, it's not all fancy video-based consults with microscopes that get you straight into stomas. You know, sometimes it's actually a lot more low-tech than that. Yeah, I love that, Anna. I love that so much. I think there's so much to be learned there, I think. Yeah. I think especially with our geriatric population, there's so many, like you said, patients that might have fallen through the cracks or don't want to pick up the phone and call or, you know, their appointment is eons away. And and I think there's so much that we can do to help fill in the gaps there. We know that's got to be there. And I do, it really, it really worries me. The, at the point that we were most locked down in New Zealand, our hospital occupancy was 25%. It is uh, Auckland Hospital where I work. It is at always at 100 to 110% at Auckland Hospital. Now, yes, some of those people weren't sick because they weren't going near people, maybe. But why? where are the strokes? Where were the COPD patients who actually probably should have gone to hospital but didn't? Where were the new cancer diagnoses? They were all sitting at home pretending they were fine because they didn't really want to go to hospital. And it's that group that really worries me because that's a hell of a lot of thousands and thousands and thousands of people around the world who did not get treatment when probably they should. People don't go to hospital for with a whim. It's a really annoying place to go. ED, you sit for hours. 
you know, nobody chooses that. So if you've got 75% of people choosing not to, there's, there's got to be an impact from that. Yeah. Yeah. Got to see that. Yeah. Yeah. My, my husband's grandfather just, or grandmother just recently passed away and there just was so many conditions that, and things that popped up that could have just easily been handled but just everyone kept advising her, you know, don't go to the hospital. You don't want to go to the hospital. And I'm just like, no, this is no, like that. We have to have some, some sort of happy medium here. There has to be a way for these patients that need to be seen, to be seen. And, and talking of trends that we might see moving forward, like what's the next stage. That's going to be really interesting to look at, isn't it? Are we going to get strokes? that we're treating who didn't get early intervention that perhaps are not as well as they would have been. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of talk about that. We're yeah. going to see cancers, obviously, that were not picked up earlier enough. But also we've now got millions and millions of people with new respiratory diagnoses. How many of those had COPD before, had a neurological condition before, are already old how many of those are just new but now have breathing problems and what will that impact be on speech pathology caseloads? We know we see these people normally, so how many more are we going to suddenly have on our caseloads with perhaps more complex um, respiratory swallow coordination issues than they had before or um, certainly what's coming out of the UK that we've been working on with our UK colleagues is far more of the more subtle ENT type referrals around um, voice and breathing patterns and chronic cough and hypersensitivity of the larynx leading to that sort of globus chronic cough laryngospasm type presentations that we see in our clinics, but perhaps we're going to now see significantly more of. Um, So I think, watch the space. I don't think speech pathology is about to settle down when the ICUs clear out. No, rehab. There have been a number of articles written and published on kind of this giant onslaught, if you will, of rehab needs, uh, physical medicine, uh, and uh, all that is rehabilitation in that regard. Um, In addition to everything that you've said, probably mid to late last year, they just started recognizing that it's simply not the breathing, that it's multi-organ involvement, that it's um, everything else. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I know newsflash, right? (laughs) So I, you know, what's, what's really interesting is, you know, during the first wave, you didn't really hear about that. All you heard was the respiratory stuff. So one of the questions that I ask is, what did we miss? How much was missed? And where are those patients now? Then the second wave comes, um, we're a little bit wiser to the fact and we're taking a better look at the patients and so forth. But then we're still jammed to the gills with patients in the hospital and in the wards um, that are specifically devoted to COVID. So now what? Push is coming to shove. You know, and we saw sort of this, you know, what I've referred to as an accordion effect where you see this expansion and contraction of the biocontainment units that held COVID. You know, we have um, multiple areas of the hospital that are strictly devoted 
to COVID. And then you have ICU, specifically the medical ICU and the surgical ICU have been flexing. Um, we have, if you will, two halves to the medical ICU specifically. It's a 24-bed unit um, with something on the order of four to six isolation rooms within those 24 beds, um, all single-person rooms. And they would shut down half the unit. And then as soon as that would become full, the entire unit would be shut down um, and it would be a, a COVID unit. And then, you know, the numbers go down, they open up half the unit, they open up the other half. And then again, you see this thing bounce back. I mean, it's bounced three or four times at this point. I, I, I lost track, but it's this kind of, of flexibility that we're seeing in the hospitals with regard to the numbers. Uh, and of course, you know, I, one of the biggest jokes, but it was the God's honest truth. Um, you see psychiatrists intubating patients. You see ENTs working as if they're fellows on a medical ICU. These are the kinds of things that have gone on that in my wildest dreams in some Michael Crichton novel, I couldn't have come up with something going on along these lines. I see that statistic out of the um, Irish Association of Speech-Language Therapists that at one point last year, I think it was around sort of mid-year, September, maybe 70% of their speech therapists were de redeployed. So 70%, and of course they're talking about not medical speech pathologists all. So everyone was out of the schools, everybody was out of the clinics. 70% of them were doing something else. And they were running morgues, they were running testing facilities. They were in ICU when they'd been working with children with um, autism spectrum disorder all of their career. And this, this is a massive impact on people to suddenly be doing a completely different job for six months of your life. Yeah. I, and certainly lots of stories to be printed in newspaper articles, editorials, and, and blogs. I, I, I mean, there's no end to this stuff. Uh, I would imagine, um, you know, going forward, you know, things here we are with vaccines hitting the world in its different forms, um, political struggles of who gets it and when they get it and how much each one gets and which one they get and I, just everything that comes in that space, I suppose. And then you have the the professionals of every society uh, society under the face of the earth uh, on the face of the earth taking a look at the next conference. Is it going to be full? Is it going to be hybrid? Are we not going to have it at all? Where is it going to be? Where can we have it the safest? or not? Yeah, um, Dysphagia Research Society is looking at Puerto Rico next year, which should have been two years ago. And, you know, my fingers are crossed, my toes are crossed uh, for all of us to be together and, and learn from each other again, live and in person, you know, but, you know, everybody's mind has that tickle in the back of it that says, are we doing the safest, best thing, right? Um, and when do we pull that cord? Um, should we pull the cord? When do we pull the cord? It's uh, no answers here. Yeah. Lots of questions. Yeah, I, I mean, that leads me to, you know, so so where are we now? You know, is it safe to 
be going back to doing fees, you know, like we were before, you know, you know, should we be doing cough reflux testing? You know, what, what do you, what do you guys think? Where are we? All right. So we are going to leave that episode there and we will pick up next week with where we are now with COVID-19 and dysphagia. So hope to catch you all next week. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.